This is a Rooster Teeth production. February 24th, 1989. United Airlines Flight 811, a Boeing 747 with 355 people on board, is taking off from Honolulu, Hawaii at 1.52 a.m., bound for Auckland, New Zealand. 17 minutes after takeoff while climbing through 23,000 feet and keeping an eye on some nearby storms, the crew hears a loud thump that shakes the aircraft. Warning lights alert the crew that something is very wrong with the plane and they fear a bomb may have gone off on board. 100 miles from land, they must quickly descend and return to the island of Oahu. The flight engineer leaves the cockpit to investigate and turns pale when he realizes part of the plane fuselage is missing. He can see straight into the night sky above the Pacific Ocean. What happened to United Flight 811? Are they able to safely return to land? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down, your favorite aviation disaster podcast, I hope. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello. We're back. Uh, before we get started, I want to remind everyone, as always, to follow us on social media at Black Box Down Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. I'm going to post images of what this plane looks like because it's it's kind of unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, it sounds terrifying, but also like the way you described it, it's like like a sky view for a, a, a plane. That you don't want. I'm sure it was beautiful and you could see tons of stars, but really not the view you want to have when you're inside no. a plane. Like you no. don't want to see straight out into the sky. No. Yeah, it's a, it's a wild one. I feel like, I, I want to say this right off the bat, it's purely coincidental that this also happened in Hawaii. You know, we did that other airline episode uh, a few episodes ago where the, the top of a plane got ripped off. This one's the side of a plane. Uh, it's just coincidence that it also happens to be in Hawaii. Yeah. So... United Airlines Flight 811 was a regularly scheduled passenger flight from Los Angeles to Sydney with stops in Honolulu and Auckland on February 24th, 1989. The flight was crewed by Captain David Cronin, who was 59 years old and had 28,000 flight hours. First Officer Gregory Al Slater, who was 48, had about 14,500 hours. And Flight Engineer Randall Mark Thomas, who was 46, had about 20,000 hours. Very experienced crew, you can tell. In fact, Mm -hmm. they were so experienced that this was the second to last flight for Captain Cronin before his retirement. Oh. There's like that whole two days to go till yeah. retirement, <laughs> like trope. I was about to say that. I was like, yeah, it's such a shame. Uh, so yeah, he, he uh, spoiler, he, he lives. So I, I feel like I can make light of that. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, so he was he was about to retire. He had uh, the second to last scheduled flight for him. He was about to retire. And there were also 15 flight attendants and 337 passengers on board. And uh, this crew in particular boarded the plane in Honolulu, even though... Like I said, the flight originated in L.A. This crew uh, got on the plane in the Honolulu leg. Uh, And the flight crew who flew the previous leg from L.A. to Honolulu reported there was no difficulty during their flight, nothing out of the ordinary. And uh, Captain Cronin and his crew arrived at the airport an hour and 15 minutes before the regular scheduled departure time. You know, they review the flight plan, maintenance records, Uh you know, everything else that they need to do to to be ready for their flight. And uh, they left the gate at 1.33 a.m. Honolulu time, which was uh, three minutes after scheduled departure. So pretty much on time. Yeah. The only reason they had that slight delay was they had problems arming the five left uh, cabin door emergency exit slide and securing the 2L door after an extended passenger boarding process. So they just wanted to make sure that the doors were secure. They just like locked the door. like Right, exactly. Uh, and when they talk about arming it, it's uh, so that, you know, if it opens, the slide deploys. Oh, I don't know if maybe people don't know that, you know, when they close it uh, as part of that, what they call cross check, you know, they make sure that it's armed so that if it opens, the emergency slide deploys. And when they land, they make sure to disarm it. That way, when they open it, it doesn't deploy. <laughs> so it's, huh. it's part of the, the process when you board and get off a plane. 
I actually, yeah, I didn't know about that. I was just thinking it almost like in terms of like um, airbags, right? Mm-hmm. If you're in a crash or something, it like arms them or, you know, like they pop out automatically or maybe like you have to push a button to shoot them out. Mm-mm. I didn't know that they're like designed to always shoot out unless you disarm it. Correct. Well, uh, so they are armed when, you know, everyone's done boarding and then they're disarmed yeah. uh, before they open the door. So you definitely want to be careful. You, you could do, you could cause some damage if you're not uh, careful with that. I'm sure someone has done that, I'm right? Sh- I'm sure it's happened. I'm sure it has. There was a that uh, flight attendant, I want to say for JetBlue several years ago, who uh, got very frustrated and he quit. And after the plane landed, I want to say in JFK, he just opened the door and the slide deployed and he jumped out. What? Yeah, he was like, I'm done. Like, I think he was fed up with the job. And I think he just, you know, wanted to go down the slide. So he left. <laughs> he opened up the door and just, yeah, I think he grabbed a couple bottles of liquor and just left. Wow. Uh, I think he did get in some trouble for that. Uh, anyway, that's, I digress. Back to <laughs> back to United Flight 811. The flight was cleared for takeoff on runway 8 right at 1.52 a.m. And the APU, uh, the auxiliary power unit, was used during the takeoff. And it was shut down shortly after making the initial power reduction to climb thrust. So, had the APU arm, we've talked about it before. It's a non-thrust producing uh, engine in the plane that generates electrical power. Mm-hmm. So they had it on, turned it off, no big deal. As the plane was climbing between 22,000 and 23,000 feet, the crew heard a thump sound and the airplane shook. A moment later, there was an explosion and the plane depressurized. The crew put on their oxygen masks, but there was no flow of oxygen. Oh. Yeah. Captain Cronin immediately initiated an emergency descent and turned 180 degrees to avoid a thunderstorm and flew back to Honolulu. Like I said, there were some storms in the area. So he just, you know, immediately started descending and, you know, turned (laughs) the exact opposite direction to go back to Honolulu. That's good. I mean, that's smart. It's like there's no oxygen. (laughs) Descend. You got to descend immediately. And we've talked about, you know, the effects of hypoxia in the past. Like, even if, you know, you you can't hold your breath. Like, the oxygen is going to get saturated out of you. You and it happens very quickly, and then it really impairs your uh, cognitive ability. So you got to get down to where you can breathe. Because you don't even know sometimes whenever you've been infected. Like, once it hits you, you don't always realize it. Right. You have no idea. You can't perform even basic tasks uh, mentally. So First Officer Slater contacted air traffic control, told them they were in an emergency descent, and they may have lost power to the number three engine. And the number three engine was shut down shortly uh, after. Uh, engine four was behaving strangely, and it was not giving normal thrust. The captain pushed engines one and two and four to full power because they couldn't maintain altitude due to their weight. They were so heavy that they needed all the power they could get at this point. So, you know, they they had just taken off, so they still had all their fuel on top of everything else. And I would imagine a hole in the plane mm-hmm. adds a lot of like air uh, drag. Air drag. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. And there's a little bit of trivia here. The captain pushed the engines to full power. This should not be done for more than two minutes at a time because it can it's too much for the engines to handle. But they were 15 minutes away from the land. So it's like he he was uh you know hoping for the best here, <laughs> had to yeah. get back as quickly as they could. Engineer Thomas left the cockpit to inspect the cabin, and he found that a large portion of the forward right side of the cabin fuselage was missing. The lead purser on the flight screamed at him, Dear God, get us down. Oh. And uh, she, I've seen interviews with her. She talks about how when the decompression happened and, you know, the part of the plane flew away that she was on the stairs in the 747 and she had to grab onto the rails of the stairs to avoid getting sucked out. Oh, my God. Ugh. And, you know, once things stabilized, uh, you know, when she was screaming at the uh, at the flight engineer, she was having to give first aid to another flight attendant who was injured. So, I mean, she she had already seen some stuff, you know, <laughs> she was yeah, she was uh, dealing with this crisis as well. So Captain Cronin had to shut down the number four engine 
because of a high exhaust temperature. And uh, they could see that there were visible flashes of fire in the engine. So they knew that like they need to shut that down. Uh-huh. So now at this point, they're only down to two engines, uh, number one and two, which are the engines on the left side of the plane. Okay, so yeah, they're lopsided at that point, right? Right. They call that asymmetrical thrust because it's only, you know, yeah. all your thrust is on one side. And how big of a hole is this? It's pretty big. Um, I, I have the exact dimensions a little later here. I want to say that the hole is going to be about 15 feet in uh, in size. And this is wh- where the passengers are? Did- mm. <laughs> you're, you're, you're jumping ahead. Uh, yeah, okay. I'm going to say yes, but uh, we'll, we'll get to the specifics there in just a second. Okay. So, like I said, they were descending, then the crew was having to dump fuel as much as they could to try to lower their weight because, uh, one, they needed a lower weight to land, and two, the engines couldn't maintain altitude at this weight, so they needed to uh, dump as much of it as they could. The flight was cleared for an approach on runway 8 left, and they were going about 190 to 200 knots, which is between 219 to 230 miles an hour, or 352 to 370 kilometers an hour. Uh, Like I said, they were only using engines 1 and 2 on this approach. Mm -hmm. And they were nervous when they were on final approach because, you know, when they're coming into land, going slower, they have to, you know, deploy their flaps and their landing gear. And they were worried that it could destabilize the plane because they weren't sure the extent of the damage and they had this asymmetrical thrust going on. And, uh, you know, we've talked about this in other incidents like the Japan Airlines 123 flight. You know, it was flap deployment that destabilized the plane and and caused them ultimately to crash. They had other issues going on at the time. But they're nervous about this flap deployment and, and gear and coming in. And then the other thing they were worried about is even if they managed to successfully land the plane and get it on the ground, uh-huh. with the damage on the plane cause it to break apart once it was resting on the ground. Oh, yeah. Like, as it hits, like, just right. fall. Just yeah. the force of coming down onto the ground and all the weight being, you know, redistributed like yeah. that. Is the plane going to split in half? Yeah. I didn't think about that, but... And wasn't it on fire, too, you said? So, like... Uh, the number four engine, but they shut it down. Okay. So, when they did extend their flaps, uh, the crew noticed that there was an indication of asymmetrical flaps. The inboard flaps were set to 10 degrees, but the right outboard flaps did not extend uh, during the flap lowering sequence. And on each of these wings, there's an inner flap and a lower uh, and an outer flap. And so the right wing outer flap did not extend. At 2.34 a.m., the plane touched down on runway 8 left at the 1,000-foot mark and came to a stop 7,000 feet later uh, with the reverse thrust used in engines 1 and 2. And just for reference, that runway is 12,312 feet long. So they did pretty good. They still had, you know, yeah. 4,300 feet of runway left on it. I mean, they... They really touched down, did a great job uh, bringing that plane to a stop. Yeah, and so with the reverse thrust only on one side, does that not like even try and turn the plane? I'm sure it does. I'm sure it's another thing that they had to wrestle with in the controls as uh, as they're trying to bring the plane to a stop. You know, they're having to really apply the brakes. and Yeah. Yeah, so, but they kept it on the runway. Uh, like I said, you know, two flights to retirement. The captain knew what he was doing, 28,000 hours of flight time. Yeah. So... They came to a stop on the runway and they uh, performed an emergency evacuation. And when it was all said and done, they uh, figured that a total of nine passengers were blown out of the airplane when the oh, explosive no. decompression occurred. And despite an extensive air and sea search, they were ultimately unable to find uh, the passengers' bodies or remains. And then besides that, there were also five serious injuries and 33 minor injuries as well. That is like this. I think that is like the greatest fear of like, boosh, and then suck. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and it, it's it's unusual. We've done, you know, we've discussed things like this in the past. We did an episode exclusively about passengers getting blown out of the airplane. Uh, you did that one, didn't you, Chris? Well, I did the one about the uh, woman who 
got sucked out of the airplane and then survived the fall. Oh, uh, right. To, down to the jungle. Uh, but yeah. And then we did that one where like the captain got sucked out the front cockpit and like. Mm-hmm. And then a passenger over Arizona. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it happens. It's not common, uh, but it, it has been known to happen. It's only common in movies. Yeah, definitely. So the primary damage to the airplane consisted of a hole on the right side near the forward lower cargo door. And it was about 10 feet by 15 feet large. So that's a, a pretty sizable hole. The cargo door was missing and an area of fuselage skin extending from the cargo door to the upper deck windows had separated from the airplane. So basically, think about the cargo doors in the bottom of the plane and the 747 has two decks. So it went from that lower area near the cargo door all uh-huh. the way up to the top of the upper deck windows. So that's Yeah, that's a big hole. That's a big hole. And on top of that, debris had damaged portions of the right wing, the right horizontal stabilizer, engines three and four, uh, and there was no damage found on the left side of the plane. So this is what caused some of the engine problems and some of the other issues that they were having as they were trying to control the plane. Oh, yeah, like just debris getting sucked in and hitting mm-hmm. and smashing. and Yeah, okay. There was a break and scuff in the right wing leading edge near engine number four and an eight-inch deep indentation near the outboard landing light. Uh, there was damage to the wing where it connected to the body of the plane. The leading edge of the horizontal stabilizer had several dents in it. A piece of a cargo container was found lodged between the number three engine pylon and the underside of the wing. Uh, The number four engine pylon had a small puncture. The number three engine inlet cowl had several tears and scuffs and a hole in it. The number three engine cases were not penetrated by objects. And the number four engine fan blade sustained damage from debris. So, I mean, it was that's pretty extensive damage. Yeah. And uh, the cargo door separation resulted in the loss of fuselage shell structure above the cargo door, along with the main cabin floor structure below seats AGH through 12GH. So it went, what was it, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. So five rows, right? Five rows of seats. Missing floor area extended inboard from the interior of the right side fuselage wall to the inboard seat track of seats 8GH through 12GH. And on top of that, the supply and fill lines from the flight crew oxygen bottle and the supply line for the passenger oxygen system have been broken below the cabin floor inboard of the missing cargo door. So that's why their masks didn't work. Man. In grand total, the estimated damage to the airplane was about $14 million in uh, you know, 1989 money. I'm sure <laughs> nowadays if yeah. this happens, it would be way more. I have, wait, I have a quick question. Were they at their cruising altitude when this happened? Like They were still climbing. They were at about 23,000 feet at this point. It could have been a lot worse if they were at, what, like 30,000, 40,000 because they would have had that much longer without oxygen. That's true. Yeah, it, it would have taken them a lot longer to get to lower altitude. So I just I, I'm looking at an inflation calculator. $14 million from 1989 is about $29.5 million uh, in 2021. But the plane was still, they fixed it? Ultimately, yeah. Uh, this plane huh. did get repaired and uh, returned to service. Wow. Uh, at the end of this, I think I have a rundown of, uh, of what happened to it. Okay, so what happened, right? Yeah. So it, it seems like all, all this damage is centered around the cargo doors. And the cargo door for the forward and aft lower cargo holes operate in a similar way. And... They can be opened either manually or electrically. And I'm going to mm-hmm. talk a little bit here. I'm going I'm to bore you to death. You want to know all about airplane doors? We're going to talk about <laughs> plane doors now. And you're going to know everything there is to know about plane doors. So we're talk about electrical power. Electrical power for the operation of the cargo door switches and the actuators is supplied from the ground handling bus, which is powered either by external power or by the APU. Uh, you know, we mentioned the APU earlier. Mm-hmm. We say external power, though. Like you ground like, power. Okay, they plug it in. Right. I don't know. If, yeah, I don't know if we've ever talked about that. Well, on the ground, planes get plugged in sometimes if the 
APU isn't on yet. And when we did our stories episode, remember a couple episodes ago, uh-huh. uh, I talked about how the pilot was trying to switch from ground power to APU and it didn't work and the whole plane shut down. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So planes can get plugged in when they're on the ground to get their electrical power. A little bit of an oversimplification, but for our purposes, that works. The door has three electrical actuators for opening and closing. The main one moves the door from the fully open position to the nearly closed position and vice versa. So the first one just like basically opens and closes the door. Mm -hmm. The second actuator moves the pull-in hooks closed or open. So basically it's like once the door, like imagine the door is open, the first Uh actuator mostly closes it. The second actuator like puts some hooks on it and rotates it. That way it kind of latches closed. Okay. And then the third actuator rotates some latch cams from the unlatched position to the latch position and kind of like locks it in place. In theory, this third latch should prevent the second pull-in hooks from being able to open or close as long as they're in there locked in place. So if you hit like the close the door button, do you have to hit like three different buttons for it to do that? Or is it like a one button that goes... Exactly. It's like that. Okay. It's just like one process. I believe on the outside of of this plane, there's a handle that needs to be pulled out and then that allows them to hit the electrical power. Gotcha. Oh, uh, here it is. <laughs> it's the next slide. The, the, the switch must be held during the whole process. So basically, it's like they have to hold it down. They don't have to push it three times, but they have to hold it down while the door either opens fully or closes fully. Okay. And then, like I said, there's a master latch lock switch that if they close it, it removes electrical uh, control power from those so that they can't open. So someone has to open a latch and then the switch works. Yeah, okay. So it's, they have to be powered on and then someone has to sit there and hold it the entire time so you don't accidentally push it. Correct. And that's the electrical uh, uh, operation of that door. It's also possible to open and close this door manually as well. But with the, you don't have to explain that. People know how to open and close doors. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I just wanted to give a little overview there of the uh, electrical operation of that door. When the door is secured properly and you know that latch is closed, there's a warning light in the cockpit. It's the cockpit cargo door warning light turns off to let them know it's secured and it's fine. Okay. Got a very different kind of sponsor for this episode. It's the Jordan Harbinger Show, which is a podcast you really should be listening to. And I know every day somebody tells you, you just have to listen to some podcasts. You nod, you say, sure, and you never listen to it. Don't let that happen here. Uh, Jordan Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Each episode is a conversation with a different fascinating guest. And when I say there's something for everyone here, I really mean that. In one episode, Jordan talks to a hostage negotiator from the FBI who offers techniques on how to get people to like and trust you, which is both useful and disturbing at the same time. Another episode tells the story of a cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle and made one of the most important archaeological finds of the century. Uh, he talks to all kinds of guests. They're from all different walks of life. Um, and he's got a couple uh, episodes I can think of. Well, he's got one with Matthew McConaughey, another with Russell Brand. Um, really, he uh, talks to all different kinds of people. Super interesting stuff. Jordan's always focused on pulling... Useful, practical insights out of his brilliant guests. We're not talking about pop psychology or wishy-washy self-help. The episodes are loaded with bits of wisdom you can use to legitimately change your mind and improve your life right away. And if that's not worth checking out, I'm not sure what is. So we really enjoy the show. We think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Unhappy with your smile? You don't have to be. Thousands of people have used Candid, the clear, comfortable, removable, and practically invisible aligners to help straighten their teeth, and now they love their smile. Candid's here to straighten your teeth so you can fall in love with your smile too. 
There's a story here from Justin M. in Atlanta, Georgia, who says, When I was younger, I used to have a gap in the front and on the side. I noticed that people would always look at my mouth first, so I was looking for a fix. Canton ended up being the perfect company for me. You can't stop me from smiling now. There's no comparison. Your treatment is prescribed and closely monitored remotely by a licensed orthodontist who's an expert in tooth movement. You'll have the same quality of care you would from an in-office orthodontist from the comfort and convenience of your own home. And while other companies use general dentists, Candid only works with orthodontists. With Candid, the same orthodontist who created your plan is with you from start to finish, so you never have to wonder how you're doing. Uh, the average Candid treatment is just six months. You'll start seeing results way before then, and it costs thousands less than traditional braces. Become your best you. Start straightening your teeth today. Right now, you can save $75 on Candid Starter Kit. Go to candidco.com slash blackboxdown. Use code blackboxdown. That's candidco.com slash blackboxdown. Use code blackboxdown. Take advantage of this limited time offer to save $75 on your starter kit. That's candid, the letter C, and the letter O, dot com slash blackboxdown, code blackboxdown. So the NTSB immediately began an investigation into the accident. They did an extensive search of the ocean to find the cargo door that had been blown off the plane, but they couldn't find it, right? I mean, it's a, a single cargo door over a giant section of the ocean. So they continued with their investigation by looking into a previous incident that involved a cargo door mishap. So they they knew it was the cargo door. They had pretty strong suspicion immediately. Uh, okay. I, I think from where the hole originated and because, mm-hmm. like I said, they, there was this previous incident that kind of led them down that path of thinking. Okay. Uh, and this previous incident was back in 1987, which is two years before this incident. Pan Am Flight 125, which was also a Boeing 747, took off from London Heathrow and had pressurization problems when they reached 20,000 feet. Sound familiar? Mm. That flight landed safely back at Heathrow, but the cargo door was found slightly open by about 1.5 inches. Oh. When the aircraft was examined, all of the locking arms were found to either be damaged or entirely shorn off. Boeing attributed this to mishandling by the ground crew. Boeing did a test and had 747 operators shut and lock the cargo door with the external handle on the door, and then activated the door open switch with the handle still in the lock position. Remember, like I said, so if that handle is down and closed, that switch should not work. Yeah. The switch was designed to deactivate the door motors if the handle was locked, so nothing should happen. But some airlines reported the door motors did run, and it tried to force the door open against the locking sectors, uh, causing damage. Oh. Yeah, so it's like it shouldn't work, but there was a malfunction in the electrical system. So even though the handle was closed and there should be no electrical power to those motors, they were still receiving power and trying to open. Oh, that's, yeah, that can really mess some stuff up. So after the flight 811 accident, the ramp service personnel who were involved with the cargo loading in Honolulu stated they had opened and closed the Ford cargo door electrically. They said they saw no damage to the cargo door and that it was flush with the fuselage when the master door latch handle stowed. Uh, The mechanic for the flight said he performed a circle check prior to the plane's departure from the gate and verified the cargo doors were flush with the master handle locked and stowed. So they said, I mean... They said that they specifically looked at it and that mm. the handle was locked and that everything was flush and it should have been good. On top of that, the flight engineer also performed an inspection of the cargo door while it was open and found no damage or abnormalities. But based on the evidence available to the NTSB and the attribution by Boeing of prior cargo door malfunctions to mishandling from ground crew, the NTSB operated from an assumption that a properly latched and locked 747 cargo door could not open in flight. Mm. So... Someone might not be telling the truth. Right. So it's like everyone on the ground and the flight engineer all say that everything looked like it was closed and operating properly. But the NTSB, because Boeing said that this kind of thing is because of ground crew uh, mishandling, the NTSB is kind of saying, well, maybe Boeing's right. Maybe you guys are wrong. 
Uh, and I'm going to read you a quote here from the NTSB. There are no reasonable means by which the door locking and latching mechanisms could open mechanically in flight from a properly closed and locked position. If the lock sectors were in proper condition and were properly situated over the closed latch cams, the lock sectors had sufficient strength to prevent the cams from vibrating to the open position during ground operation and flight. However, there are two possible means by which the cargo door could open while in flight. Either the latching mechanisms were forced open electrically through the lock sectors after the door was secured, or the door was not properly latched and locked before departure. Then the door opened when the pressurization loads reached a point that the latches could not hold. So, basically, the NTSB concluded in April 1990 that the accident was caused by human error by the ground crew. The NTSB mm. also faulted the airline for improper maintenance and inspection due to its failure to identify the damaged locking mechanism. They concluded that the accident was preventable human error and not a problem inherent with the design or function of the aircraft's cargo door. So had it previously been damaged by someone pushing it when it was locked? Well, Chris, this story has a twist to it. Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> the investigation doesn't stop here. Someone on the flight uh, was a New Zealand citizen. His name was uh, Lee Campbell, and he was one of the nine people who passed away. He was in row eight, and his parents did not buy this at all. So they decided to have their own investigation into the accident. What? They, uh, yeah, they thought that this was a cover-up, and they thought that there was evidence that the ground crew did nothing wrong and that there was a problem with the plane that the NTSB was not disclosing. Oh, so, this is juicy, Gus. <laughs> yeah, they 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 actually attended all of the uh, you know the public NTSB briefings and hearings regarding this flight, and and one of them a couple of months after the the accident, they attended an NTSB briefing in California where they were uh, I believe it was in California where they were um, you know the NTSB was giving the press all the information they had about. The accident, mm -hmm. and uh, when they were done with their presentation, the NTSB had set up a press table, and they told the members of the press and anyone who's there, like if they want to help themselves to anything on the table, all the documents. And then the NTSB, you know, left the room. They mistakenly put their own internal documents on that table. Oh, so Lee's parents, Kevin and Susan, went up there and took the NTSB documents. Were they already suspicious at this point? Yeah, they were already suspicious at this point. They didn't buy it. They ran their own investigation, and their investigation led them to conclude that the accident was not human error, but the combination of an electrical problem and inadequate design of the cargo door, and they presented their theory to the NTSB. So, I don't know if you've thought much about how doors open and close on planes. Not till today. Not till today. <laughs> <laughs> Think about doors in your house. Think about your front door, right? Your front door can either swing out or swing in. Mm-hmm. I don't know about everywhere in the world, but I think here in Austin, front doors of businesses and front doors of houses have to swing out. So like in the event of emergency, you can push it, right? You don't have to yeah. pull. Well, plane doors, obviously they're also doors. They can either go out or come in. Mm -hmm. Like think about, I don't know how much you pay attention to overwing exit doors. So if you ever see seated in an exit row on a plane, if you ever look at the little placard that gives you instructions on how to open the door, almost every time... You have to open the door and then you pick it up, you pull it into the plane, and then you have to put the door like on the seat. You have to get it out of the way. Okay. Is that because the pressure of like the air pressure, if it, if it went out, it would go whoop and like fly out? Exactly. Okay. So that way when you're at altitude, uh, since the pressure inside the plane is higher, you can't open that door because you can't pull it in because the air pressure yeah. is holding it in place. Yeah. 
So you have to be on the ground to be able to open it, which makes sense for an emergency exit door, right? Yeah, security. It's a security thing counterintuitively, but yeah. Right. So this cargo door on the 747 was designed to be an outward hinging door. Oh. The kind of door we just talked about, like the uh, emergency exit door, those are called plug doors. It jams against the frame and the difference in air pressure makes it impossible to open at altitude. An outward hinging door doesn't have that problem because it wants to swing out. Mm-hmm. And the cargo door was an outward hinging type. The benefit of this is that since it swings out, you have more space for cargo, but you need a strong locking mechanism to keep it closed. And there were known deficiencies in the design of wide body aircraft cargo doors since the early 1970s. And these were not fully addressed by the NTSB or the aircraft industry, despite warnings and deaths from DC-10 accidents. The locking sector, so remember how I, I'm going to describe it again, just to be safe. So the door came down and there's like a bar at the bottom of the door. So when it closes, that bar, you know, is close to the fuselage. These rotating pieces of metal that look like the letter C come out and like secure the the metal bar. Once they kind of like hold the metal bar in, there's another piece of metal that looks like an L that comes over the open part of the C and kind of like jams it in place. That way the C can't rotate. Okay. But the problem is that that letter L piece that's supposed to stop the C from moving was made out of aluminum. And it was too thin to keep the letter C piece from moving and bending it out of the way. So it was just flawed inherently. Right, there was an inherent flaw in that design. And they knew this, like I mentioned from the Pan Am flight, they knew that this was a possibility. And these aluminum pieces should have been replaced with steel pieces. And the cost to do this was only about $2,000 a plane. The problem was that to do it, it took 10 hours of work. So they'd have to take the planes out of service to make this swap over. Uh-huh. So the other part of this is that, or the other failure, I should say, is that, like I mentioned, those electrical switches are supposed to cut power to the door when that outer handle is closed. But if there's a fault, those motors could still draw power. And like we mentioned before, some airlines said their motors would still try to open the door, even though those latches were closed. After the Pan Am incident that I mentioned earlier, Boeing issued a service bulletin notifying operators to replace the aluminum locking sectors with steel locking sectors. Uh, And in July 1988, the FAA mandated this and gave the U.S. airlines 18 to 24 months to comply. After United Flight 811, which is this incident, the time was shortened to 30 days. So think about that. They knew that there was a problem with this door. They knew that it could malfunction. They knew that the cost was only $2,000 to fix it. But they still gave everyone a year and a half to two years to try to fix this problem, knowing they were putting passengers on planes with this potentially catastrophic problem. Yeah, that's... NTSB did that? The FAA uh, made that mandate. Okay. And then, of course, after Flight 811, then they realized how dangerous it is, and then they shortened the time to 30 days. It's, it's, it should be criminal in the first place. Like, these nine people should not have died. They knew this was a problem. They knew this needed to be fixed. And then they tried to cover it up. Right. And then yeah, they say, oh, the people on the ground messed it up. It took those people from New Zealand running their own investigation, Kevin and Susan Campbell, in order to really try to bring the truth to light. So I, I guess I'm curious about the cover up part of it. You might get into it. Were they genuinely aware that that could have been it and just didn't want to look into it or mention it as a possibility? I can't speak to that. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, the conspiracy theorist in me wants to say yes, that they absolutely knew this was the case. I mean, like you even asked immediately, like, oh, they knew it was the cargo door? Like there was no other (laughs) investigation here? Yeah. It seems pretty cut and dry that they knew that this was what was happening. And like I mentioned, I don't think we've covered any of these other incidents. Similar things had happened with the DC-10 when it first came out. 
you know, years before this. So it was an ongoing thing that they knew to keep an eye on. Yeah. Eventually, later, on September 26th and October 1st of 1990, two halves of the cargo door from Flight 811 were found and recovered from the Pacific Ocean. Oh! 14,100 feet below the ocean surface. And by the way, I want to point out, it was because of this other second investigation keeping the pressure on them that they kept looking for that door. I think if that other investigation had not been happening, they would have been okay with never finding this door. That's pretty messed up. It's, yeah. I would say it's unhinged. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. That <laughs> was horrible. Ugh. Thank you. for. <laughs> I tried. I tried. I did my best. So the NTSB inspected the door and they determined that the condition of the locking mechanism did not support their original conclusion. While the NTSB was inspecting the recovered door, they discovered some electrical wiring insulation breaches and there was a possibility that there could have been an electrical short circuit that gave power to the actuators in the door. So they couldn't find any actual evidence that there was arcing from the short circuit, but many of the wires that could have caused the short circuiting were not recovered. And during some tests, there was no detectable arcing evidence left behind anyway. So they couldn't find direct evidence of a short circuit, but they did find that the wires were frayed and that this was possible. So you say short circuit as in like it just got power and started trying to open the door? Right. Like another uh, nearby wire that was live could have arced over and provided power to a wire that should not have had power and then activate the motor. Whoa. Through no one's fault, just pure bad luck. Yeah, I was thinking like, did someone go up and push the button, you know? And Mm-mm, It's pure short circuit, malfunction. Also in 1991, there was another incident of a United Airlines 747 cargo door at JFK. The maintenance staff were investigating the cause of a circuit breaker trip when suddenly the cargo door opened despite it being fully closed. This incident confirmed that electrical short circuits in the cargo door wiring could cause the door to open. Mm. The NTSB thinks that it's unlikely that an electrical short circuit would have happened after the plane was airborne. According to the NTSB, once the engines start, the chance for a short to happen decreased significantly because the ground handling bus is no longer connected to the APU. So they think that the short circuit most likely occurred before the engines start, but they also note there's some limited possibilities for an uncommanded electrical actuation to exist after the engine start, while the plane is still on the ground with the APU running, basically they're saying it's not probable, but it's possible. Mm-hmm. Well, even if it happened when the plane was on the ground, if they'd already sh- shut it and checked it and it was good, and then it short circuited it and then like started breaking and then they flew up. So like like you're talking about like the L locking mechanism could have been holding it for a bit, but then eventually it bends once they're off the ground. Yeah. Yeah, that's possible. I mean, that's definitely a possibility. I think they can't determine, you know, that exact sequence, but it's possible. So for all of their hard work in their second investigation, the Campbells actually never sued or took any money from United Airlines. All they asked was that a scholarship be set up in their son's name uh, as a memorial to him. That's nice. That's good on them. Mm -hmm. On March 18th, 1992, the NTSB issued a new report with an updated probable cause. The NTSB determines that the probable cause of this accident was the sudden opening of the forward lower lobe cargo door in flight and the subsequent explosive decompression. The door opening was attributed to a faulty switch or wiring in the door control system, which permitted electrical actuation of the door latches toward the unlatched position after initial door closure and before takeoff. So this is kind of what you're talking about. It's possible it happened after they closed the door, inspected it, like maybe while the plane was taxiing or before, Mm -hmm. at some point before takeoff. 
Contributing to the cause of the accident was a deficiency in the design of the cargo door locking mechanisms, which made them susceptible to deformation, allowing the door to become unlatched after being properly latched and locked. This just means they're made out of aluminum instead of steel. That's why they were susceptible to deformation. Also contributing to the accident was a lack of timely correcting actions by Boeing and the FAA following a 1987 cargo door opening incident on a Pan Am B747. So this is just the NTSB saying, this is Boeing and the FAA's fault. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they made some recommendations. Require that the electrical actuating systems for non-plug cargo doors on transport category aircraft provide for the removal of all electrical power from circuits on the door after closure except for any indicating circuit power necessary to provide positive indication that the door is properly latched and locked to eliminate the possibility of uncommanded actuator movements caused by wiring short circuits. So basically, there should be no power to those electrical systems that open the door, except for maybe a light to alert people that everything's okay. Yeah, okay. Which is how it was supposed to be to begin with. It was just, there was a, it was a problem here. Require that the manual drive units and electrical actuators for Boeing 747 cargo doors have torque-limiting devices to ensure that the lock sectors cannot be overridden during mechanical or electrical operation of the latch cams. Basically, reduce the power on the the C part of the lock I was talking about so that it can't bend metal. Yeah, yeah. It should only need so much torque to open and close. You know, know, so that's why they want to talk about torque limiters on them. Require that non-plug cargo doors on all transport category airplanes have the installation of positive indicators to ground personnel and flight crews confirming the actual position of both latch cams and locks independently. So just some kind of system to show people that the door is actually locked, that everything's in the correct position. Mm -hmm. Require that the fail-safe design considerations for non-plug cargo doors on present and future transport category airplanes account for conceivable human errors in addition to electrical and mechanical malfunctions. So... Have more fail-safes to to try to eliminate the human uh, element there. Require that face masks be attached to regulators of portable emergency oxygen bottles. So I think we've mentioned this in the past in a previous episode. So basically, uh, have the crew have their own emergency oxygen bottle so that if the oxygen gets cut off in the plane, they still have a little oxygen tank with them they can breathe out of. I remember talking about that and being like, oh, that's cool. I didn't know that was a thing. And this is why it's a thing. Yep. Here you go. Require that a portable oxygen bottle be located at the flight attendant stations at exit door 5 right and 5 left in Boeing 747 airplanes. So, give some for the flight attendants too. Require a readily accessible megaphone at each row at which a flight attendant is stationed. Uh, This is because a megaphone was used by a flight attendant in the accident to talk to passengers because the noise caused by the hole in the fuselage. But the NTSB thinks that more megaphones would have been helpful anyway. Okay, so they had one, but they're like, just more in case that one... Right, yeah. yeah. We got lucky with that one. Let's have more so yeah. that if we need them, we have them. Uh, in 1989, the flight crew received a secretary's award for heroism for their actions. Uh, like I said earlier, the aircraft was repaired and returned to service with United in 1990. Uh, in 1997, it was sent to Air Dabia, and after that airline collapsed, the plane was abandoned, and in 2004, it was ultimately scrapped for parts. So this plane does not fly any longer. Well, so the, the crew on the flight got an award. What about the ground crew that got thrown in the dirt? Right. Like what happened? Yeah. I don't know what happened to them, but I, I felt really bad. They were thrown under the bus. They, they they testified that they did everything right. Thrown under the Airbus. Oh. Uh. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, yeah, I like it. I like a little aviation humor. Uh, I, I don't know ultimately what happened to them. You know, they were initially blamed for this, but of course, you know, eventually the other report comes out and exonerates them and says that they were right all along. Which is yeah. absolutely terrible. Captain David Cronin eventually passed away October 4th, 2010. He was 81 years old. 
did he do his other flight? Or is he like, I'm done. I, like, I, don't have any, I don't have any record on it, but I assume he did. It's like, oh, that was your second to last? You're like, do I really want to get back and do one more? And, or should I just like <laughs> stop there? Maybe they just gave him a real short one, like Austin <laughs> Houston or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, first officer, uh, Gregory Slater, also uh, eventually passed away September 26, 2016, at the age of 75. I just, I don't quite get why the family from New Zealand, why they didn't believe the initial report. Like what led them to think that? Like if so, if something like that happened to me and a family member, I would assume that the reasons that they, I would have any, what reason do they have to not believe them? I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, I don't, I don't have enough background on them. They must've known that this kind of thing was an issue before. They must've remembered about that Pan Am flight that I talked about and known that it was possible for cargo doors to open. Yeah, I wonder if they did their own like research of like, what it could have been before the report came out and we're start looking mm-hmm. into it. It might be, you know, like part of the grief process, right? Like trying to understand what happened to their son. That's got to be, they must have like done some research and like looked into it and then realized that that was a possibility. So then whenever they were told otherwise, they're like, well, but they didn't even look into this. Right, huh. yeah. It's a, it's a fascinating story. Um, they, I mean, th- that family spent a lot of their own money. Because, you know, like I said, they were from New Zealand. They were having to fly to the United States and they were driving crisscross around the country, you know, because they would have to go to Washington, D.C. to deal with the NTSB and FAA. Then they'd have to fly, you know, or not fly. They would drive to the West Coast uh, yeah. to deal with Boeing and to try to find all this information. I mean, they really did a lot of work on this uh, on this incident. And I can't believe they didn't try and sue them or anything. I mean, they just wanted to know the truth. But I guess also... Because of them pressuring and figuring that out and finding what actually happened, they made all those changes happen, right? Because yeah. a lot of them wouldn't have happened had they not done that, right? Right. And who's to know? Who's to say if there wouldn't have been another cargo door mishap? Because you know, because of them, the timeline to make these these fixes went from eighteen to twenty four months down to thirty days. You know, yeah. who's to say that there wouldn't have been another accident where a whole plane could have gone down? They should get an award. They should, absolutely. I have huge respect for them and for the work that they did in uh, you know, trying to uncover the truth. It sounds like something out of a movie, like Aaron Brockovich or something, right? Yeah, it sounds like a movie. Yeah. Maybe we should give them a Black Box Down Humanitarian Award. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said earlier, make sure you follow us on social media at Black Box Down Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you're going to want to see what this plane looked like uh, once they landed it to see all the damage that's on it and the big section of plane missing. It's absolutely unbelievable that they were able to land this thing. Yeah. Hopefully you guys enjoy this. And uh, as always, uh, give us a good rating and share this podcast. Uh, I, I, I know you haven't shared it yet. You better find one person to share it with or I'm going to be very upset with you. Someone who likes true crime or something or like mysteries and like all that kind of stuff. Be like, hey, I got one for you. It's about planes. Yeah. And it's different. It's... It's about planes. <laughs> yes, it is, it is about planes. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.